Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics so that defenders can pick and choose what they want to listen to without having to commit to an hour-long podcast with guests and entertaining banter. This not only saves you time, but also relieves me of the pressure of trying to be entertaining. This podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial insofar as the ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is, of course, an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. I am Daryl Johnson of the Air Force's Defense Counsel Assistance Program, and it's 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region. Please join me as I pour myself a drink to relax, sit down, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. For this week's update on the law, we'll cover the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces decision in United States v. Boge, which addressed what turned out to be the narrow breadth of one of the exceptions to the patient psychotherapist privilege under MRE 513. Then, our focus on advocacy will look at laying the foundation for personal knowledge under Military Rule of Evidence 602. The dispute in the Boge case centered on statements made by the alleged victim, who was a minor, to her psychotherapist. While at a counseling center, she told her treating psychotherapist that she was sexually abused by the appellant. Under Florida law, this allegation constituted evidence of child abuse and the psychotherapist was required to report it to a Florida agency which the psychotherapist did. That then led to the creation of a summary report by the state agency and an audio recording of the psychotherapist's call to the reporting hotline. At trial, the defense obtained the summary report and the audio recording, but the military judge denied the defense's motion when it came to its request for all records of communications between the complainant and her psychotherapist that had led to the required report of child sexual abuse. No one disputed that the communication sought by the defense fell under the patient psychotherapist privilege codified in Military Rule of Evidence 513A in that they were made to a provider for purposes of obtaining treatment. Consistent with the defense position at trial, the appellant's claim on appeal rested primarily on the language of MRE 513D3, which says that there is no privilege under this rule when federal law, state law, or service regulation impose a duty to report information contained in a communication. There are two takeaways from the case for defense counsel at the trial level. First, if you already thought getting an in-camera review under Military Rule of Evidence 513 was tough enough, nothing in this decision will change your mind. Under MRE 513E, the moving party is required to prove four things by a preponderance of the evidence before a military judge is even allowed to conduct in-camera review of mental health records. Those four things are, one, a specific factual basis demonstrating a reasonable likelihood that the records or communications would yield evidence admissible under an exception to the privilege, two, that the requested information meets one of the enumerated exceptions under MRE 513, three, that the information sought is not merely cumulative of other information already available, and four, that the party made reasonable efforts to obtain the same or substantially similar information through non-privileged sources. In the Boge opinion, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces found that the communication sought by the defense did not fall under the exception for when federal law, state law, or service regulations impose a duty to report information. 
In so doing, the court found that the language of the rule was ambiguous and therefore interpreted it in the context of the rest of the rule as well as prior cases. The court first concluded that required reports from a psychotherapist to state authorities about child sex abuse allegations are themselves privileged. That may seem a little confusing because the rule only applies to communications made by the patient to their provider. With a mandatory report, the communication is from the provider to the state agency. But what CAF found was that the patient retains a right to prohibit further release of the report to anyone other than the receiving agency, at least insofar as the report contains communications from the patient to his or her provider. That was important for two reasons. First, because the appellant was asserting that the provider's report to the state agency was not a privileged communication at all, and therefore the exception clearly wasn't referencing the report, but rather was speaking to the underlying communications that led to the report. So the majority rejected that view. The second reason the finding was important is because it allowed CAF to consider MRE 513's command that any disclosure, quote, must be narrowly tailored to only the specific records or communications or portions of records or communications that meet the requirements for one of the enumerated exceptions to the privilege. End of quote. In so doing, CAF held that reading the mandatory report exception as applying to the underlying communications between the patient and her provider would, quote, violate the command that any disclosure must be narrowly tailored. End of quote. So CAF held that the mandatory report exception applies only to the mandatory report itself and not to the patient's communications that led to the mandatory report. So you don't get the underlying communication. In fact, you get very little. Let's flesh this out a little bit with an example. Say a state agency mandates that all mental health providers are required to report to a state agency anytime they have evidence of child sexual abuse. Now assume a psychotherapist receives communications from her patient that is evidence of child sexual abuse. The provider calls the state agency, and on a recorded hotline, she says her own name, the name of the patient, the name of the alleged perpetrator, and adds that the patient had been victimized on four separate occasions. As a result of the report, law enforcement interviews the patient, and the patient alleges that the perpetrator sexually assaulted her on one occasion only. As held by CAF, the mandatory report exception would only allow the defense to obtain the mental health provider's report to the state agency, but the exception does not pierce that report so that the defense could discover what communications the patient actually made to the provider that led the provider to report that the abuse had occurred on four separate occasions. This may seem troublesome to defense counsel who may be thinking, what the hell am I supposed to do with that? Am I going to impeach the patient based on what her provider told someone else? Well, after reading this case, I've come to the conclusion that MRE 513-D3, the mandatory report exclusion, is simply not meant for litigators. It is an exclusion that allows the provider to make the mandatory report without waiving the privilege beyond what was reported. It essentially allows the government to investigate the allegations, and that is about it. It is not a discovery device and is not likely to be evidence at trial. Therefore, if defense counsel want the underlying communication, they need to find a different exception. Which brings us to the second takeaway from this case. One of the issues on appeal was ineffective assistance of counsel based on trial defense counsel failing to assert the exception under MRE 513-D2, which negates the privilege regarding communications from the patient to the provider that are evidence of child abuse or neglect. 
Trial Defense Counsel also failed to assert that underlying communication that led to the mandatory report should have been produced under the now-deleted constitutionally required exception to MRE 513. Unfortunately, the evidence of child abuse and constitutionally required exceptions were not raised directly, but instead were alleged as ineffective assistance of counsel. Therefore, the appellant had to show that there is a reasonable probability that such a motion would have been meritorious. Kaff's analysis on this was very terse. For instance, it summarily concluded that because the Florida law that mandated the reporting was triggered by any knowledge or suspicion that a child is a victim of sexual abuse, that, quote, the duty to report exception and the evidence of child abuse exception are effectively coterminous in this case, end of quote. In my view, that makes no sense in light of Kaff's holding that the duty to report exception is limited to the actual report. Surely the evidence of child abuse exception, which makes no mention of any report, is not limited to statements made by the provider to the state agency. The evidence of child abuse exception must apply to the communications actually made by the patient to the provider. So the exceptions can't possibly be coterminous in this case. But that is what CAF held and therefore found no IAC for failing to raise the exception. Regarding the constitutionally required exception, the CAF acknowledged there was some merit to the appellant's constitutional concerns in light of his right to cross-examine a witness for impeachment purposes, but nonetheless failed to find IAC. One thing the court did not address is any significance of the constitutionally required exception being removed from the rule. It didn't need to address that because the government agreed that, quote, the removal of a constitutional exception from an executive order-based rule of evidence cannot alter the reach of the Constitution, end of quote. But because the constitutional analysis was framed as an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, there was a very high bar for the appellant to clear, and he just couldn't do so given the competing interests of the privilege versus the right to confrontation. That said, in footnote 12, the court practically invites the question of how a properly presented constitutional question would affect the analysis. The court states, quote, because this issue was presented as an ineffective assistance claim, we express no opinion as to when the Constitution may compel discovery of documentary records. Rather, we simply note that appellant's counsel was not constitutionally ineffective for failing to raise what would have been a cutting-edge claim. End of quote. Here again, I do not quite follow the CAF because it is describing the constitutionally required exception as cutting-edge, despite the fact that it was previously written into the rule itself. Regardless, I encourage you to accept the court's invitation by always, where it's not frivolous, raising the constitutional exception as a basis for discovery in your motions under MRE 513. Turning to this week's advocacy focus, we're going to talk about something that is critical to any lay witness examination, the need for the witness to have personal knowledge of what you're talking to them about. The requirement comes from Military Rule of Evidence 602, which says, quote, a witness may testify to a matter only if evidence is introduced sufficiently to support a finding that the witness has personal knowledge of the matter. Evidence to prove personal knowledge may consist of the witness's own testimony. End of quote. When you break down the language of the rule, you get four big takeaways. One, personal knowledge needs to be established for every lay witness. Two, to have personal knowledge, the witness must have been in a position to observe the thing about which they are testifying. Three, the witness must have actually observed the thing about which they are testifying. And four, 
Personal knowledge can be established through the witness or through a different witness. How you lay this foundation is a bit of a mixture of art and science. On the one hand, you have the rule. But the rule isn't as detailed as, for example, the list of things that you have to show to meet a foundation for a business record's hearsay exception. So you have some latitude in how you prove personal knowledge. On the other hand, just how far you go in addressing this foundation is going to depend on what is in dispute in your case and how you, as an advocate, believe you can best convey the story of your case. Let's illustrate this rule with a couple of examples. For starters, let's imagine that you're calling a law enforcement agent who interviewed the alleged victim in a case. You are defense counsel and are calling the agent in your case in chief to prove up a prior inconsistent statement by the alleged victim. You've already cross-examined the alleged victim and established personal knowledge of the agent as part of your prior inconsistent statement foundation, as follows. You met with agents from the Air Force Office of Special Investigation. You met with them that Tuesday after the incident with Airman Snuffy. You met with Agent Smith and Agent Johnson. Oh, you don't remember their names? But you did meet with two agents. You met with them in your home. They came to your house. It was just the three of you present. There were no TVs or radios on while you were talking. You spoke at your kitchen table. They were each about three feet away from you. You could hear them and they could hear you. You had a conversation with them about what happened with Airman Snuffy. They were taking notes. With that line of inquiry, we're showing that the agent that the defense counsel plans to call, let's say Agent Smith, was physically present and was able to hear what was being said, which matters given that we're teeing up questions about a prior and consistent statement. Similarly, you could lay the foundation through Agent Smith directly. Did you interview the alleged victim in this case? When did you interview him? Where did you interview him? Where were you situated when you spoke with the alleged victim? Were you able to hear what the alleged victim was saying? Foundations in this area can sometimes require more detail and be more contentious than the example we just used. For example, let's say you have four people who met out at a bar. The alleged victim, the alleged victim's best friend, the accused client, and the accused client's friend. The accused client, who is charged with sexually assaulting alleged victim, testified that alleged victim and alleged victim's best friends were saying flirty things to him. Alleged victim and alleged victim's best friend deny it. You want to lend credibility to the accused client's take on the matter, but it's a bar, it was loud, there was drinking, there was dancing, attentions may have been diverted. In those instances, you may really want to dig into the details to establish personal knowledge because it affects the credibility of the witness. The accused client's friend not only needs to have personal knowledge of the alleged flirting by seeing and hearing it over the loud music, but his ability to perceive, which may or may not be believable depending on how much he was dancing, drinking, and or drowned out by the loud music, or how close he was to the alleged flirting, is critical to building up the believability of the point you are making. In terms of organizing your questions, you could potentially split up some of your personal knowledge questions. Here's one general outline of how you might organize the questions of the accused client's friend. Were you there and able to hear the accused client talking with alleged victim and alleged victim's best friend? What did they say? Okay, but there were all these other things that were going on, so how were you able to hear that? Alternatively, you might organize the questions by flipping two and three. Were you there and able to hear the accused client talking with alleged victim and alleged victim's best friend? 
Okay, but there were all of these other things that were going on, so how were you able to hear them? What did they say? Lastly, when walking through this personal knowledge piece, some advocates may try to style their questions more in the present tense as opposed to the past tense to try and make it like the fact finder is living out the thing about which the witness is testifying in real time. It's similar to how some advocates will use the present tense in describing an event as if it is happening in real time in an opening statement. This is probably unnatural for some attorneys, at least as a style of witness examination, but some attorneys like to do it. To illustrate that, Let's keep going with our example of the group of four at the bar. Most counsel will probably ask the personal knowledge questions, with varying amounts of detail, in the past tense, something like this. Were you at the bar that night? How did you get there? Who did you go with? Where did you go in the bar when you got there? Who were you with? Were you with them the whole time? What did you do with them? Were you able to hear what they were saying? The present tense version might look something like this. Let's walk through this night as you experienced it. Where are you going? How are you getting there? What do you see as you arrive? You walk in the door. Where are you going? Who are you seeing? As you see them, what are you doing? As you are sitting with them, what are you seeing? As you are sitting with them, what are you hearing? This choice, like so many others, comes back to the art of being an advocate and the choices that you get to make as counsel. You might want to play around with it and see what works for you in a particular case or with a particular witness. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. skies drive the dark clouds far away and will you please say hello to the friends that I know